We're so glad that you've tuned in for week four of our podcast, Your Week with St. Luke's. Week four is an exciting week because we're going to be looking at the character of the nemesis. Now, many people think the nemesis is like a villain and and is outside of ourselves, but we're going to turn it on its head and we're going to look at the nemesis within us, our own ego, as we look at David's ego and how he struggled with that the most. So let's dig into the lecture with Dr. Ryan right now. Hey friends, and welcome back to this course on David. I've had so much fun with you so far, digging through these stories of David and the various supporting characters in his life. And here in week four, we're gonna turn to another archetypal character that we find more broadly in film and literature, but also plays a role in the story of David. And it's the role of the nemesis. So when you think of a nemesis from film and literature, what sort of figures come to mind? Maybe it's Darth Vader or Lord Voldemort or something like that from popular films. Uh, The nemesis is an intriguing and fascinating figure. There's probably a lot of overlap between the role that the nemesis plays and the role that the antagonizer plays. But perhaps we might think of the nemesis as having a more central role in the story itself. So if you're thinking of Harry Potter, maybe we think of Draco Malfoy as playing the role of the antagonizer, but it's Voldemort who actually plays the role of the nemesis. Now, sometimes when we think of a nemesis and a protagonist and the nature of their relationship, we might tend to think of them as being on opposite ends of a continuum. It's the yin to the yang, or they are the antitheses of one another. And that can be the case, but I want to suggest that most nemesises, or nemesi perhaps, are really not polar opposites, or rather, instead of imagining it as a continuum, a straight line, We might imagine that line bending in on itself, something like a U, such that the nemesis and the protagonist in the end actually share a number of features in commonality. And maybe they even have a similar background or similar parents or similar origin stories. That's what partly heightens the intensity of the plot around the conflict between the protagonist and the nemesis. It's actually that they share these similarities or these similar backgrounds. So much so that I want to suggest that sometimes the real nemesis of the story is not another character, a bad guy or a villain, but rather it's the protagonist's own ego. It's something internal to the protagonist herself or himself. It's something about their nature, their shadow side, that can bring about destructive forces and can disrupt the good that the protagonist should do and has been called to do. I want to suggest that this is exactly the case with David. More than Goliath, more than Saul, the chief nemesis in this story is David's own inflated sense of ego, inflated sense of self-importance. That's what stands in the way of him being the person and the king that God has called him to be. So in this lesson, I want to explore with you two moments in the story of David where we really see David's ego getting in the way of living out his calling to be a just and faithful king. Before we turn to those two moments, I actually want to take a step back and think with you for a moment about what's the source of David's inflated sense of ego? Where might this come from? How does he come by the problem of having an ego as a nemesis? Well, this whole question might be somewhat surprising because we are aware 
of David's humble origins. If we turn back to 1 Samuel 16, you'll recall that David was the youngest son of eight. He was a humble shepherd boy before he's called to be king. And he's from this little town of Bethlehem, to quote the musical, uh, the Christmas hymn, that he's from this, this really unimportant town, Bethlehem, which was sort of a backwater or in the shadow of Jerusalem. So there's nothing about David's origin stories that suggests that he's going to be a hero or a king. And there's nothing to suggest that he's going to have this inflated sense of ego. So where does it come from? Well, maybe it comes from his triumph over the great Philistine hero, Goliath. Maybe that wind went to his head and, and, and he started to think that he's more prominent uh, than he actually was or that he has this power and this power might be from God in a way that makes him stand out and stand above his contemporaries. That could well be the case. It's easy to imagine that happening, but nowhere in the biblical text does it make that suggestion. In other words, when David's egos becomes a problem, it's much further down the line. It's not immediately after the win over Goliath. So where does it come from? Well, I want to suggest that his inflated sense of ego is actually comes from something deeply theological about his story. That is to say that David's uh, overinflated sense of self-importance is sort of the shadow side of the fact that he is God's chosen one. He is God's anointed. He is the one that God has elected to replace Saul and to be uh, Israel's king uh, at this moment. And we get a sense of this promise that David, excuse me, that God makes to David, and that might lead to this sense of ego uh, already in 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to read from verses 13 to 16. This is God speaking, and he's speaking to David. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is an amazing promise that God is making to David. It's a promise forever. Three times here in this short passage, you'll see the word forever repeated. This is a promise that's going to be everlasting. So it's not a momentary blessing, a momentary promise, but God is making an eternal promise to David. It's also a family promise. It's not just for David, but it's for his descendants after him. That is, even after David has, has passed away, his sons will carry on this promise, and it's his descendants who will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And finally, this is an irrevocable promise. The text says, I will not take my steadfast love from him uh, as it was taken away from Saul. Now, sometimes because of this irrevocable promise, the nature of this promise, it's said that this is an unconditional covenant or an unconditional promise. And that's not quite right, because if you pay attention to the language here, the irrevocability of this promise does not preclude uh, the possibility of punishment. 
In other words, there are conditions and consequences for obedience and disobedience. Now, the promise itself that David will be king will not be taken away, but there are real consequences at hand. So for that reason, I don't think it's quite right to refer to this as an unconditional promise. And yet we still need to recognize that it is a forever promise. It is a family promise and it is an irrevocable promise. This is, friends, the most robust articulation of David's chosenness, the chosenness of David as king. And a theological name for such chosenness that we often use is election. The idea of election generally is that one person or one people is chosen and selected from among many others to be a unique recipient of God's promise and God's blessing. This, in the case of David, the chosenness and his election is not based on his good deeds, his skills, or his accomplishments. What is very clear in 2 Samuel 7 is that David's election and chosenness is pure gift. We might want to use the word grace to describe the conference of this promise onto David. The gift of chosenness should lead towards humility to God and a sense of responsibility towards others. We see this, I think, with David in the incident with Mephibosheth. The power of David that he receives as king is used for good. But friends, there's a shadow side to election as well. And that's when uh, an awareness of one's special status leads to an elevated sense of self-importance, when it leads to a sense of entitlement, when it leads to the belief, uh, implicit or explicit, that if God is with you, if God has elected you, then God is with you in everything that you do, in everything that you want, in everything you seek to accomplish. God is implicitly behind that. I call this the with God on my side mentality. That is to say, we extrapolate from the knowledge of chosenness to this belief that God will justify every single thing that we do. And I think that this sort of uh, shadow side of election begins to creep in for David, and it casts a shadow on many of his interactions that follows. The chief example of this comes in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and this is the incident with Bathsheba, which I uh, affectionately refer to as Bathsheba Gate. You probably will remember how the story goes, but here's, uh, here's how it begins. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. That little uh, phrase there, but David remained in Jerusalem, is really important. Because the background we need to understand here is that in spring, it was common for armies to march out into battle as the weather got better. And it was customary for kings to accompany his army out into battle. But David does not do so here in this case. And we're not given a long explanation of why that is, but we can infer that David was leaning into his status as king and was sort of stepping out of his responsibility to be on the front lines alongside of his troops. So he's leading into privilege and he's getting out of this responsibility. And really this is sort of the beginning of the problem is that David has this sense of chosenness and election and he's using it uh, to lean into privilege rather than responsibility. And this is the start of the problem. Let's keep reading. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
the woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman, and it was reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. So notice what's happening here. David has some leisure time on his hands because he's not engaged with his army for war. And he's wandering about on the rooftops of his palace. He sees this woman, he inquires, he knows she married, and she, he still uh, calls for her and takes her. He sends his messengers to get her. And, and in fact, I think this is not the best translation. Uh, the verb that's translated here as get is the Hebrew word that's translated as take in 1 Samuel 8, 11 through 18. And if you remember that context, that's where Saul, uh, excuse me, Samuel is expressing reservations about the kingship. And he says, look, this is what kings will be like. They will take your daughters. They will take your men. They will take your crops. They will take your tithe. Kings are takers. And that same word in Hebrew that's translated as take in 1 Samuel 8 is the same word that we encounter here, but gets translated as get. What's really clear, friends, is that David becomes just like the king that Samuel feared Israel would one day have. David becomes a king who takes, and in this case, he takes a human life. And I want to be clear in highlighting here that Bathsheba had no choice in this matter. When David sends for her and takes her, it is against her will. Friends, I think we need to refer to this what it actually is. This is rape. This is sexual exploitation of a powerless woman by a powerful man. And it's hard to acknowledge that because we have so many high and lofty views of David. But this is David's ego in its worst case scenario. This is David's ego diverting him from the path of faithfulness that God had called him to. And the results are disastrous because not only is Bathsheba raped, which is uh, a traumatic and horrifying experience in its own right, but David then, when he finds out that Bathsheba has become pregnant, David enters into this elaborate cover-up plan. He tries to lure uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battle lines into the city so that he might lay with his wife such that David could then say the child is really that of her husband, not of the king. But Uriah is too honorable a man to do that. He refuses to leave his troops and to lay with Uriah, excuse me, to lay with Bathsheba. So finally, David says, look, he, he talks to his military officials and he says, look, next time you go out into battle, um, bring Uriah the Hittite into the front of the lines and then withdraw troops from him so that he is exposed and such that the enemies will kill him. It's clear that David is not involved in the direct murder of Uriah, but it's also clear that David has ordered the hit. David is culpable for the murder of Uriah, and it's all to cover up the fact that he raped Bathsheba and that she has become pregnant. So friends, this is uh, a horrifying tale, and, and let's look at the conclusion of it to get a sense of what has happened. This is 2 Samuel eleven twenty six. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her, that is Bathsheba, to his house, and she became his wife. Notice David again is taking what he wants without regard to the will of the other. And she bores him, bear, uh, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. 
Bathsheba laments, but so too does God. And the text tells us that the thing displeased the Lord. I find this to be a rather tepid translation here in the NRSV for what the actual Hebrew says. The Hebrew reads something closer to the thing which David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That is closer to what the Hebrew says, and I think it accentuates the fact that this didn't just displease God, but this was a major act of of covenant unfaithfulness. This was an act of injustice. This was an act of evil. So we really get a sense that, that God is making judgment on here, the anointed king, for what he has done. And it makes me think back to that text at the end of 1 Samuel 15, after Saul had sinned and Saul had disobeyed. If you remember, the text says that God was sorry that he anointed Saul as king. And I can't help but wonder, is God once again sorry that he has anointed a particular human as king? Is God second guessing this idea of, of, of giving David this forever promise that he and his descendants will reign on the throne of Israel from generation to generation? Is God having second thoughts about that choice in light of what David has done? After all, it could easily be argued that the sins that David commits are far graver and more serious than the sins that Saul has committed. This is something I'm going to invite you to think about and discuss together in our discussion time. Now, this incident with uh, Bathsheba and Uriah is the most well-known account, I think, of David's ego being out of whack and out of order, but it's not the only incident that illustrates the destructive potential of David's uh, inflated self, self, in, inflated sense of self-importance. Excuse me. Um, and the other episode is actually found back in Second Samuel seven, and it has to do with David's plan to build a temple. At this moment, David is finally enthroned as king over all of Israel. That happens in 2 Samuel 5. He has captured this Jebusite city called Jerusalem, and he's made it his capital. So he begins to build his political base. He makes himself a palace from which he can rule from. So David is really beginning to consolidate his power as king. And at that moment, I think David is looking for his next project. And that's what we begin to read about in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 3. Now, when the king was settled in his house, that is his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all the enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, see now, I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. He's referring here to the tabernacle. Nathan said to the king, go do all that you have in mind for the Lord is with you. So to catch what's happening here, David has built himself his own palace, but he recognizes that the Ark of the Covenant, this the most holy and important object in ancient Israelite spirituality, was still dwelling in a mishkan or a tent or tabernacle. And David wants to build a temple for God, a temple in which that ark uh, could be placed. Now, why would David want to do that? Well, perhaps it's because uh, it's out of a sense of piety. That is to say that David wants to make sure that he's building a house 
that is a temple for the ark and for God, just as he has built in a house for himself. But I think there's something a little bit more going on here. Um, I think it could be that David is wanting to do what other ancient Near Eastern kings would do. When ancient Near Eastern kings would establish the reign, and particularly when they would establish a new capital city, as Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, as David had just done with Jerusalem, it was very customary for kings to build a new temple and dedicate it to their God. Um, now, that is in one sense an act of piety and religious devotion, but in another sense, it was a way that kings sort of emphasized their importance, right? It was a way of saying, look, I'm not only consolidating political power here in my palace, but I'm also consolidating religious or spiritual power here in this temple that I have built for God. And I think some of this is at work with David too, and it really emerges out of this inflated sense of self-importance. We get a hint of this in how God responds to David's idea to build a temple. There are two aspects of God's response that I want to highlight. First, let's read from verse 4 in chapter 7. Thus says the Lord, are you the one to build me a house to live in? And then moving down to verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Now, do you catch what's going on here? God is saying, look, you've got it all backwards. It's not that you are going to make me, God, a house that is a temple, but rather I, God, am going to make you a house. And the way this can work is that there's this great play on words in Hebrew. The Hebrew word bayit uh, can mean house, it can mean palace, it can mean temple, and it can even mean kingdom. That is to say, if we were speaking more metaphorically about the house of David as the kingdom or the reign of David. So there's this great interplay in the Hebrew. And, and so David's saying to God, look, I want to build you a it. And God says back to him, no, 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 it's me who will build you a it." So it's almost a, a sense that, that God is reminding David of his place in God's kingdom. It's not about God's place in David's kingdom. It's about David's place in God's kingdom. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part comes into view in verse 6. God's still speaking here. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I had been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. You see, what's happening here is that God is underscoring that David's theology is off. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is not a temple-dwelling God like the other gods of the ancient Near East. The God of Israel, Yahweh, is a tabernacle-dwelling deity. Now, what's the difference between a tabernacle and a temple? Well, actually, there's a lot. And the primary difference is the fact that the tabernacle was a tent-like structure that was not a permanent structure. It was something that was meant to be set up, packed up, and moved. So think of Israel moving through the wilderness in the story of Exodus and Numbers. Israel needed a tabernacle because they were a people on the move. A temple is a permanent structure, and there's really different dynamics around conceptualizing of God around a temple or, or a tabernacle. If God is located in a temple, then the whole point of the religious experience is to get people to where the temple is. And if you have a temple, then you can set up a whole structure of people and rituals and procedures that are meant to manage who can access God at the temple. 
But when God is in a tabernacle, as in this text, God is saying God was supposed to be, then it's not about getting people to where God is. Rather, it's about getting God to where the people are. It, God moves about in a tabernacle precisely to have this mobility. God needs to move with Israel into the wilderness. And then looking beyond that, when Israel goes into exile uh, and the temple is destroyed, not all is lost because God is this mobile tabernacle God who can move with Israel into the experience of exile. And even, friends, the New Testament, I think, picks up on this idea that, that our God really is meant to be a tabernacle God, not a temple God. We get a sense of this, and this is just a hint of it, in the beginning of the Gospel of John in verse 1, 14. It reads like this, and the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The word I want to highlight here is this word lived. In Greek, there's a really good word for live, and it's related to uh, the name Zoe. The name Zoe is from Greek. It means life. And there's a verb based on that same word. And that's the word that Greek uses for live. What's really interesting here is that that's not the Greek word behind the translation lived in John 1:14. Rather, it's another word. It's skanao, and skanao uh, comes from the Hebrew word for tabernacle, the mishkan. So what the author of John is doing here is he's saying that look, God uh, incarnate, who we know in the person of Jesus Christ, is a God who it becomes flesh and doesn't just live among us, but I would want to translate that, that Jesus Christ comes to tabernacle among us. Jesus embodies in the incarnation the same spirit that God is highlighting here in 1 Samuel 7 verse 6, that God goes about in a tabernacle precisely because God is meant to be mobilized and to move with the people, not for the people to move to where God is, but the other way around. So, I think David here, uh, his inflated sense of ego, not only compels him to want to build this grand project that really will sort of elevate his status and his authority as king, but I think David's theology is wrong. He conceptualizes what God is like in an incorrect fashion. One of the things I'm going to invite you to talk about in just a few moments is to reflect on this tension and difference between what I'm going to call temple theology and tabernacle theology. That is, if we imagine God as a tabernacle God as opposed to a temple God, how does that change the way we understand the mission of the church? How does that change the relationship of the people of God to particular buildings and places? I'm going to have you think more about that uh, in ver from various different perspectives in just a moment. But as I wrap up, let me add one addendum to this uh, in David's ambition to build a temple. And this is going to take us beyond 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, you might know that even though David doesn't get to build the temple, his son Solomon does. So the no here from God is a temporary no. Solomon is able to build the temple years later. And, and Solomon is often celebrated as being the king who does build the temple. And the temple is often celebrated as this glorious, beautiful center of Israelite spirituality. But one of the stories that often goes untold is how Solomon built the temple. We get a glimpse of this in 1 Kings 5 reading from uh, verse 13 through 18. 
King Solomon conscripted forced labor out of all of Israel. The levy numbered 30,000 men, and he sent them to the Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home, and Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon also had 70,000 laborers and 80,000 stonecutters in the hill country, besides Solomon 3,300 supervisors who were over the work, having charge of the people who did the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great, costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house, now that means temple here, with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the Giblites did the stone cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Now this is one of those passages that we often sort of skip over or don't even know that's there, but it's a really important text because what it describes for us, friends, is that in order to build the temple, Solomon enslaved his own people. Solomon enslaves Israelites as forced laborers and workers to build this temple, this house for God. Literally, Solomon builds the temple on the back of the poor laborers of the land of Israel. So in this sense then, Solomon is much like Pharaoh. He enslaves his own people to build temples that on the outside, sure, are meant to honor God, but really in the end, I think are all about honoring the king and the king's sense of ego and self-importance. So this story of the temple then is much more complicated than we often led on to. And this is something else I wanna invite you to discuss in just a moment. So as a wrap up, what we've seen here in this lesson is that David's ego is a crucial but often unnamed character in the story. And I'm suggesting that the best way to understand David's ego is that it's his nemesis. It's his shadow side. It's the thing that, that threatens to bring him and his whole kingship down. And as readers of this story, we have to reckon with it. We have to acknowledge it. We have to name its problematic dimensions. And this doesn't always happen in the church where David is often celebrated flatly as this wonderful, faithful, pious figure. But now I think we're seeing through this series that he is not that. Even in other parts of scripture, uh, David can get cleaned up and presented in a much more favorable fashion. In fact, if we read the parallel story of David, which can be found in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 through 29, we see a lot of similarities to the story of David that we encounter in 1 and 2 Samuel, but a lot of David's worst moments are left out of the story. For instance, the whole rape of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, 1 Chronicles 10 through 29, does not mention that uh, those sins and those uh, atrocities at all. It leaves them out of the story. So even though there's a lot of similarities between 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st Chronicles 10 through 29, I think 1st Chronicles presents to us this pristine David, this gilded David. In fact, there's, a, I think, a great visual metaphor for this. Um, and you can see that in these two images on your screen. On the left is the very famous uh, statue of David by Michelangelo, which was originally intended for Florence. And on the right, you see an exact replica of that statue, but it's plated or gilded in gold. And this ha just happens to stand outside of a hotel in Louisville, Kentucky, for reasons I don't fully understand. But the contrast here or these images really, I think, bring to light what I think is happening in scripture. We have the real David on the left, and then we have the gilded or pristine David on the right. I think Samuel gives us the David uh, with all of his flaws. It gives us the David where his ego uh, is his nemesis. 
First Chronicles, in contrast, gives us this pristine David, this, this gilded David where all of his sins are elided or hidden from the story. And friends, I think this is really important because as a church and as a people of faith, we need to name and come face to face with the real David, the David in all of his messiness and all of his sin. And that's so important that we enter into these acts of truth-telling about what David was really like uh, because we as a church need to do that about ourselves. We need to be truth-tellers with respect to our own messiness and our own sin. We need to be truth-tellers with respect to the history of the church in all of its good, but also in its many flaws. We need to uncover these untold stories to name them, to repent of them, and to be engaged in a process of healing and reconciliation for the world that God so loves. And so this story then about David's ego becomes really a mirror for how we are to acknowledge our own flaws and come to uh, face to face with maybe the ways in which our own ego can be our nemesis. This week's Office Hours, both Jeremy and myself are going to be joining Dr. Eby and Dr. Ryan as we talk about the ego and how often it's our ego that we struggle with as our nemesis more than anything. And and what is that internal struggle that we have that tries to compete ourselves against other people? Let's look at that nemesis as we go into a deeper conversation. Hey, family, it's Pastor Jeremy. I'm here with Pastor Jen and Drs. Evie and Ryan, and we are continuing our sermon series on uh, the characters in our life story, and we're doing so by taking an archetypal look at the characters in David's story. So let's jump in again. Where should we get started? Yeah, Jeremy, thanks. It's great to be with you and Jen on this conversation and EB. And so this week for the study, we're looking at the nemesis of the story. And this is week four, but we've already looked at another type of character called the antagonist. And those two terms for some could be used interchangeably. So what I'm interested in is what do you all think is the difference between a nemesis and an antagonist? Uh, Evie, you had spoken before about, I think, when you're talking about a nemesis, there has to be some kind of equality. Is that is that on track? Right. So an, an antagonist or as we're, the antagonizer can be anyone or anything. It doesn't have to necessarily be a person uh, that either puts some form of conflict or obstruction in the, the path of the protagonist in order you know, for them to have to overcome. Uh, but a nemesis... Um, and that, too, can also be either an event or a person, but it has to be something of equal force for the protagonist, something that they're equally matched that gives them their due. So for whatever action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And the nemesis provides that type of balance in the story. I think a nemesis is someone that the protagonist looks at and sees, like you said, something something that that they're alike. That, but I think what the nemesis does is it pushes in on something within the protagonist that yes. that that they see in that person, I want to be like that person, or they have something that I don't have, or um, they're better at something, they get more recognition. And I think what a nemesis does is actually is defined by the protagonist. The protagonist chooses that person to be the nemesis, whereas an antagonizer is something that comes externally. I think a nemesis is something that actually comes from internally from within the protagonist. 
Yeah, that really resonates with me, Jen, because I'm thinking back to, uh, to get personal a bit on this, that back during my graduate studies, there was this colleague I had, really nice guy, friendly guy, and I always thought of him as my nemesis. And he had no idea that that was the case. But part of it was he was someone who was really devoted to study, but also had no boundaries in his life and no room for anything but study. And so there was a part of me that was envious of that, and there was a part of me that resented it. And it was in that tension of both like wanting it and hating it. And then knowing that that tension was actually inside of me with respect to my own studies and own work-life balance, he never knew he was a nemesis. But that, that's the work that it did inside of me uh, that, that I felt conflicted around those things. I think it pushes up against, too, uh, the shadow side of ourselves. Like, uh, you right. know, the best of myself wants to to like this person and and allow this person to healthy in a healthy way compete with me and make me better. But I think sometimes it pushes on the shadow side that makes us want what they have. It makes us doubt what we have and doubt who we are. Um, and and it begins to make us feed ourselves and what our motivations are and what intrinsically we want over that person. Exactly. And what's interesting is that nemesis in the Greek sense can also mean downfall. So it's where the hero or the protagonist takes her eyes off of the end goal that the story writer has said that this is what we're moving towards and the nemesis is is the downfall. So it's interesting in, in these stories, like you said, there's this distraction of I want that, I need to be a match for that and it always ends up being a different path. It's, hmm. it's this where we go astray and the nemesis is that thing that they chase. You know? Right. So your nemesis is, is ultimately within yourself. Exactly. Right. I mean, that exactly. person is just an extraneous symbol of yeah. this battle going on within ourselves between our, our gifts, our strengths, and that, you know, what one preacher used to say, you know, your shadow side is not uh, a complete opposite of who you are. You don't just automatically go off and, and, and completely be a different person. It's the 5%, the five degrees off yes. that then makes you choose another five degrees off that then makes you choose another five degrees off. And before you know it, you've lost yourself um, in, in really what is the nemesis of your own and it's your own ego. Mm. That's right. I love that you keep saying choose, right? Because mm -hmm. it feels like in the when you identify or recognize someone who could be your nemesis, right? It feels like you have an opportunity to recognize that the feelings of lack you might be feeling are valid, but then you have to you could ask yourself, what do I do with that? But when we don't do that, it turns into this fervent hatred often. You know what I mean? And this rejection and this frustration. That's yeah. right. And for David, you know, it, it we, we in the study part of it described a David's nemesis as his own ego, right? It's not Saul per se. It's not Goliath even. It's it's what is interior to David, his own ambition, his own sense that now I am king, I can take and have what I want. I'm in, this is my prerogative is to have and to take. And that's really David's downfall. Exactly. Because in the David story, uh, he fairly easily defeats Goliath and Best Saul over and over. We've talked already about how he can capture Saul if he wanted and mercifully, hear the air quotes around that, lets him off the hook. It's almost as if all of these other competitors were just too easy, but the battles we see David lose 
are always with himself. Mm, that's mm. right. How much ego is it, is there in the fact that David is David's nemesis, or at least his ego is, right? Because um, we, we talked about why someone who comes from the margins, uh, in, in a way, might be exalted uh, to power, right? Um, but when we see David at his height, who else could be his nemesis? Exactly. No one has that amount yeah. of power. No one has, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who else could it possibly be but himself, you know? He believes his own hype. That's right. And I think worst. that's what our ego does, is yeah. it starts to believe our own hype that that other people have said about us. And we turn to that as our North Star. That becomes our compass, mm-hmm. which, again, it it's so easily it's so easily moved in little tiny choices or little tiny ignoring of things that we move into it and then we get lost in it. I mean, he has a choice in chapter 11 with Bathsheba, and you're right, he has a choice every single moment to to stop this, but he doesn't because it continually feeds his, his ego, his power. I have the ability to do whatever I want and get away with it. Mm. And that hype is super tempting, right? Because I'm sure that... When you hear the song that, oh, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. Yeah. Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, but, yeah I did. You yeah. know? Yeah. And all of that started so far before the whole episode with Bathsheba. You know, this is this has started way, way before this. And so when we get to chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, we think, oh, my word, David does this so quickly. You know, even the verbs, you know, he sees her, he sends for her, he lays with her, he sends her home. I mean, it's just it's rapid fire. And you think, well, where did he have time to make these choices? But when you look at the road that led to this, this has been slowly over time a feeding of this ego. That's right. And one of those verbs we encounter in that story, though it gets a little bit lost in English translation, is the word that he takes, Bathsheba. Um, And that same verb, especially in the Hebrew, appears, I think, nine times in, if we remember back to chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel gives this warning about what kings will be like. He says, they're going to take your sons, they're going to take your daughters, they're going to take your cattle, they're going to take your money. And that's what David does. At his worst, when his ego is unchecked, he becomes the very king that Samuel warned about. He becomes a king that takes, and there's no restraint on that taking. One of the things also in that chapter that I think is really important, because I think you're onto something, Evie, that it doesn't just start randomly with this choice uh, with Bathsheba. The very first line of chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11, is that David is at home and at rest in Jerusalem when his men are out to war. And it was the job of the king to be out with his men in war. Now, we can debate about whether they should have been out at war or not, but David was leaning into his privilege to opt out of that responsibility. And that's what gives him the leisure time really to be unoccupied in Jerusalem. And that's, I think, is at least part of where his downfall begins as a prior choice to lean into privilege and not into responsibility. I've always found that funny that that chapter starts that way. Because why is the Bible so shady, right? <laughs> right? Because it's just like, it's springtime. We're kings supposed to be off at war. Right. Anyway, here's David. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I why, know, like, why was, is it that way? Was it, was the scent in the air like, oh, springtime. It smells like war. <laughs> it smells like war. That's hilarious. Well, and there's no mention of God either. So it's 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 completely devoid of God mm-hmm. who who 
who supposedly, depending on, you know, whether you read before the David story or after the David story, you know, was his compass, but there is none because it's just about him and it's about what he wants. And um, Jim Harnish wrote a book about this. And Jim Harnish, of course, the founding pastor of St. Luke's and, and described e- ego as edging God out. It's mm. when we've edged God out and we've put ourselves at the center, which again, he's been doing all along because who can defeat him? And so therefore, why not? Yeah. Why not be at the center of my own life? And that's the danger of power. I mean, for David, David was God's anointed. He became the king. He was in a position where he actually had the power to make himself his own compass, right? And so there, that's the allure of power that you have the now the ways to orchestrate your will be done, not God's. And David was in that position and and abused it, obviously, in this case. It's interesting, too, because the the big prohibition, uh, of course, for, for Israel is always idolatry. And, you know, throughout the judge's story and the Joshua story, the, the temptation is always idol worship, you know, and we think of, you know, the, the statues, the Asherahs, the, the things like that. And yet in the David story, what we get is this temptation to, you know, impose oneself or one's ego in that place instead. And so idolatry ends up becoming a much more complex thing and a, a much more subtle temptation than what we see in maybe the judge's narrative or others. And I wonder if, you know, if part of that for David was that in that moment, he forgot how he became king. Remember, he was brought from the, he was the eighth son, a lowly shepherd. David, not by David's merit, did he become the anointed and not by David's power, did he become king. It was all gift. But I wonder in that moment, if he sort of, his memory got real foggy. (laughs) about that. And he was like feeling his own oats and thinking like, yeah, I did this. Like, look at me. I'm the king now. Um, I don't know. We don't get that. But I think we're, 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 we're invited to wonder about what's going on in David's head. I think you're onto something because, I mean, isn't that what we struggle with all the time is we forget like where we've come from. Um, We forget everything is a gift from God. We forget the people who have come alongside us and helped us to become who we are and who have walked the journey with us. And 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 that's when we begin to truly believe that somehow we are people of our own making, which, which is never the truth. I mean, there has always been a community around us, you know, helping us to become who we are. And when we believe that we're people of our own making, we, we, we decenter anything else besides what we want. And I think that's one of the struggles of, of what it means to be a person of faith, especially. You know, when that happens, when we lose perspective of the story, like, just like you were saying. Yeah. Right. I, I, um, I heard someone say this, I, I don't remember who, but they said that privilege without gratitude becomes entitlement. Hmm, and absolutely. I feel like that is so applicable mm-hmm. to this story and, and very applicable to our own stories. Mm-hmm. You know, that whenever we see uh, privilege and we don't have the gratitude for what we have, that's when it becomes, I deserve this, I am entitled to it. And I feel like this is especially applicable in our historical and social moments that we're going through right now, um, that we really can take from David's story, not not in the seizure, mm-hmm. seizure sense, but yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but we can really apply that to ourselves, that that's what exactly what's happening here, is that he has this privilege, and rather than seeing it as gift, um, he feels entitled to it. And what happens as a result, then, is him stripping others 
of their gifts that they've been given by God, like Uriah and Bathsheba and others. Taken. Taking. And when we don't want to see that in ourselves, I mean, because none of us want to examine ourselves that much, we we then create these nemesis. We yeah. create these people along the way that says, I'm not privileged. I, you know, I, that's not true. I'm this person. It's because yeah. of this person's problem or this person or that yeah. person that came in my life. Instead of being able to look at ourselves and say, you know, yeah, how have I lost my story? How yeah. have I lost the true story in my life? And isn't that the great way to say it, that David has lost track of his own story, Mm. like why he was there? And, you know, David, we have this sense of David being uh, chosen or elected by God to this position. And we can think of that election in terms of status, like it comes with this privilege, right? That you're God's elect, you're God's anointed, you're the king. But um, in, in, in Jewish circles, the way they understand chosenness and election is not in terms of status, but it's in terms of you don't have a choice. So Jeremy, if you are chosen by God, it means that you're on the hook. You, it's not about your status. It's about your responsibility. Mm, now mm-hmm. you're in it. God has you and you, ha- you, you are into this work. And mm. so that's a different sense, right? It shifts us from status to responsibility. Um, a, a Hebrew Bible professor of mine said, you were not chosen to the exclusion of others, but rather on their behalf. Uh, yeah. And so as soon as David starts making these, de- well, not starts, because we, we know it's taken a while, but him making these decisions for himself means that he is rejecting that responsibility of acting on the people's behalf, mm-hmm. that his job as their king, as their shepherd, is to make sure they have the green pastures and that they have the still water. And by taking it for himself, he is denying them what he was chosen to do on their behalf. Mm, that's right. Think Thinking about your point about how the lack of gratitude leads to entitlement, I wonder, like, putting ourselves in David's shoes at his, at his height and at the most dastardly of his deeds and then being able to see what happens next, is there a gratefulness that comes in and being stopped? Mm. Is there a great... It, I mean, I, I just wonder about that because it's super painful. Like, I doubt that any of us would want to be halted or stopped or, or kind of reprimanded the way David was. But I, I remember that, uh, I remember older folks in church would pray when I was little and they would say, God, save me from me. Hmm. You know what I mean? They would hmm. say, God, save me from me, wow. from, the, from the darker parts of myself that can sometimes leak out and, and harm others. And so I wonder, is there a thankfulness for a guy that cares enough to be like, hey, chill out, bro. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think there is because otherwise we devour, we don't just devour other people, which obviously he does throughout this. He just devours people. He takes them, and, and but he devours himself. I mean, he little by little chips away at his own sense of humanity, yeah. responsibility, calling, whatever it may be. So, so to me, I would hope there would be gratitude because I, I want someone to stop me from myself. Hmm. And we also have that beautiful um, 51st Psalm you know, that is attributed to David or at least describing this. And it's about this, you know, sort of being crushed. And but but yet there's obviously thankfulness. um, Deliver me from my own bloodshed. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, you know, that the psalm writer says. And so there's there's obviously this this paradox of I'm feeling this um, tremendous weight from the judgment of God. And yet that's a redemptive judgment. The fact that God has put an end to that, um, even if it crushes me, I'm on the way up now and mm. I'm being cleansed, um, created me this clean heart and I will help now to 
tell others of your goodness and grace. So I feel like there definitely is uh, a relief in being caught, so to speak, and because it's it's the path towards um, being delivered. Mm. It's the movement from coming out of the shadows because none of us really wants to live in the dark. We all want to live in the light. And, and that redemption allows us to come out of the shadow self and, and into the light of what our purpose is and what could be. Yeah. And then to receive God's forgiveness on the other side, which happens for David. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences in David's story for his violence, for his abuse. There are real consequences, but there's also real forgiveness and there's real grace on the other side. <laughs> 